I, I wanted to pray for us. I wanted to pray in um, being Valentine's Day. Uh, it's a good opportunity. Uh, 25 years came in, by the way. We haven't been married 25 years, but we've spent 25 Valentine's dinners together in a row. So that's where the 25 came in. And uh, my wife, Wendy, is a saint. I think uh, if, any of, if any of you know Wendy, um, she's not here right now, so I can talk about her. Um, she is a gem. She is the biggest blessing in my life. Uh, she is very patient, very loving, very fun. If you're around Wendy, you just feel better about yourself. And that's something I really appreciate about her. And uh, I think of Valentine's Day, and I think of, for one, I think of, man, there's, there's good reason why we have a Valentine's Day. It's accountability, in one sense, for us uh, men to, to have a day where we're like, reminded of how special our women are. Not so much what you get for them or uh, spending money or whatnot, but it's just a great, a great opportunity, accountability-wise, to say, have, when was the last time I really told my wife or, or someone in my life that I love them? Not just my wife, but my kids, uh, family, friends, whatnot, and... Um, so today I got to tell Greg I love you on Valentine's Day. That was my first message out of I love you was to Greg. So, um, But I wanted to, pray, wanted to pray for married couples uh, that the marriages in our fellowship would be strengthened. That, that. Wow. Every time I lean down, I kind of get that. Sorry about that. Um, that they'd be strengthened. We all, we all agree with this, right, that our marriage is under attack. Uh, we also all agree, right, that marriages uh, really require support, love, and prayer in order to prosper, in order to stay healthy, in order to avoid conflicts that would put a marriage relationship asunder. Um, so we need to pray for them. I thought Valentine's Day was a great day to do that. But I also want to pray for those that are in dating relationships, uh, those who are engaged. Um, just the fact that there's immense pressure to go the world's way of dating, of courtship. Um, there's a lot of variance in the Christian community on what dating should look like, and I, I'm not here to talk about that today as much as just want to pray for those relationships that as they go forward, Lord willing, towards long-term commitment led by him, uh, that one way or another they would be led by Jesus himself, by the Holy Spirit, into places of righteousness and, and places of, of really solidifying the relationship together so it's God-honoring. Amen? Um, and then, but also, it's a, it's a great day to pray for our singles. And not singles, comma, on their way to hopefully marriage or relationship even, but singles that are called to celibacy and singleness. It, it is their um, chance, again, to fortify their love relationship with the Savior. And we don't talk a lot about singleness, um, uh, unfortunately, but it is a gift. It is a gift honorable before God. And when someone is single, and when, if you yourself are in this, uh, this season of life, or if it's meant for your whole life, I just want to encourage you that's a good thing. Marriage is good, and singleness is good. And singleness is something that can be celebrated for a few reasons. One comes into mind is just you're unhindered, as Paul would say. You're not distracted with, with things of, of, of uh, a marital relationship or significant other in terms of romance, you're, you're able to be single-minded to the Lord. And that's an envious thing in a lot of ways. It's really good. And some of you uh, have taken a, a position of, I'm going to be celibate in order to honor Jesus. And that in itself is, is glorious. Amen? So let's stand together. We'll pray together. We'll pray for all those. And then we're all going to... I'm just going to leave a moment where you can just thank Jesus himself on your own part uh, for the love that cannot be rivaled. There's no one, no love has greater than this, that he laid down his life for his friend. And Jesus himself says that you're my friends. So let's celebrate that now as we pray together. Father God, we thank you that you are here, that we have a chance to be together as a community of faith. Lord, that the marriages in our midst, we, we want to lift them up to you. We want to ask for you to be glorified as you would strengthen them, as you would help them to keep short accounts, to forgive well, to offer forgiveness well, to seek out forgiveness well. Lord, that we would allow your spirit to lead and guide our marriages. Pray for many, many years, not just longevity, but quality years for marriages in our midst and those who are um, that we know and love. God, we also want to pray for those who are dating, who are in relationships that are committed, to those that are engaged, 
that you would direct them, that they would be kept from distractions that would cause them to, to go awry in their relationship, to be led astray. Lord, we pray that you would keep them honorable before you. Give them great victory over the temptations of the flesh, but moreover, God, just direct them to help them know themselves well enough to be able to sacrifice well, to be able to die well, to be able to pursue you well. And Lord, for the singles in our midst, those who are uh, in hopes of relationship long-term and those who are called to singleness, we pray that you would keep them in your love, that they would be so enveloped with the amazing grace that's poured out upon them that they would be lacking of nothing, that they would be content, that you would fill them up today with joy. In particular, they could be so joyous in their relationship with you that they'd be able to rejoice without hesitation in relationships around them. And God, that you would fill them up as you're the Savior. And so now, Lord, as we just want to say thank you to you for the love that you give us, God, just here as we pray in our hearts right now. Lord, your love is rivaled by nothing. No one has love as you've demonstrated. Jesus, we thank you that we can celebrate love as it's truly known to be sacrificial, selfless, willing to die, willing to put others' needs before our own. God, you demonstrated that on the cross. You demonstrate that as how you act in our lives and how you've acted throughout eternity past and into the future, infinity. We celebrate that today. Thank you so much for your love. We all ask it in Jesus' name. Everybody say, amen. Yeah, see. If you want to open up your Bibles, we'll be in the last part of chapter 4 of Acts, continuing the series. This is an amazing passage. You know, one of the things when you read your Bible, it's important to remember that Chapter and verse is there by translation. Um, it is not there in the original. And sometimes when you're digging into the word, especially when teaching like this, like I have been um, preparing for, you get to the end of the chapter and you can stop there. It's kind of like, well, okay, close the book. We're, we're done with that section. Uh, it's really interesting because the, the end of chapter 4 of the book of Acts and the beginning of chapter 5 are, uh, if you juxtapose those two sections, they're very striking in contrast. End of, of four is actually almost like a continuation of the chapters before it. We see the community in full, uh, what it means to be unified. We're going to look at all this. And then chapter five opens with a very striking contrast to that, where God judges some sin. And uh, why I would choose to go into five and include this is just because I think God has, at the end of this morning, Hopefully, Lord willing, a unified message for all of us in both what to celebrate, what is the ideal, what are we looking for as far as uh, Christian community, um, and then also what should we be wary of, what should we be avoiding, what, how can we go awry in that community and, and learn from those lessons um, that hopefully we will not have to suffer the same consequences as the characters we're going to look at um, in this passage. So... I wanted to look at a few things leading up to this. As I said, chapter 4, the end of it is kind of this theme celebrated what we see in the previous chapters. So if we just want to do a quick review of this, if you'll go to Acts chapter 1, verse 14, we're going to be looking at Luke, the doctor, describing unity of the saints. Several of those places, starting in verse 14. These all continued with one accord, that is the believers in prayer, and supplication, this is a small group of people, it says here, with the women and, the Mary, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So you had the disciples, close, gosh, sorry, close quarters, very sensitive. So I move this down. I'm going to pause the recording. Uh, turn to Acts 2.1. Further, Luke describes. 
when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. 244 and 45. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So you had this, this example given by Luke that, that such great uh, vitality was present that they were meeting each other's needs. There was wonders. There were signs being done through the apostles. All were together in verse 44 and had all things in common. 246 included. Now jump to 424 right before the passage we're looking at this morning. It says, so when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. They were, they were unified. Their message was the same. They were together. And, and now we get to this end of chapter 4, starting in verse 32. So please read with me. This is out of the ESV um, that I'm reading. It says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses, they sold them, and they brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Verse 36 says, Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. By the way, did we already pass out Bibles? If you need a Bible, we have some in the back if you need on the shelf over there. Um, but by way of introduction, this, this furthers that theme of Luke who takes facts and presents it as a doctor would and lays it out before us of this example of the community being so unified, so together, so uh, in terms of, of concern, pointed outward instead of inward first. They're looking at each other and they're saying, this is, this is, this is what's happening. It says great grace uh, was upon them all. Great power was there in their midst. Uh, they, their full number in the thousands at this point. People from all over the place had come to Jerusalem. They're now there in a community, many of whom are just new converts, and all of a sudden, well, not all of a sudden, but in the process of God bringing these people together, something amazing and miraculous is starting to take place. Can you get that sense? These are exciting times to be a believer. As it turns out, in this first generation of believers, everybody's looking towards one another. It's a, it's a natural byproduct, of you will, if you will, of being saved and your heart changing to being less concerned about your own self and more concerned about those around you and their well-being. And so we're reading this. It says the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And uh, interesting phrase there, one heart and soul. In the Greek, it's cardia and psyche. You guys already know what those words translated would be. Would be cardia or cardiology, study of the heart and psyche that of the soul. And, and basically when it's talking about this in the Greek, that phrase, they were of one heart and soul, uh, their seat of desires, their feelings, their affections, their passions, that's incorporated in the heart, the cardia. Okay? And the united, unanimous uh, emotion, feeling, direction, in the infections and the will, that was where you brought in the soul part. Everything, the, the very seat of where they were con uh, intent and focused on was not about themselves, it was about unification of the brethren. Men, women, children, and this was radical in the time. Uh, Brian, over the last few weeks as he's done uh, such an amazing job of going through the book of Acts, one of the things is he's talking about you're going from an earthly living to a kingdom living. Kingdom living looks very different than earthly living. Earthly living would be more of a carnal perspective by default. doesn't mean there's no, nothing good in the carnal in of itself. It just means that the intent of the heart is not regenerated to the point where it's, it's now focused and intent in a different realm altogether, which is, would be the heavenly realms. And this is what's happening. It says, no, everything in common. This is an interesting quote by Lesore. It says, it isn't accurate to see this as an early form of communism. Had to throw this in, election year, right? Election season. Okay, he's not saying this is communism. Communism is not koinonia. Communism says, what is yours is mine, I'll take it. Koinonia says, what is mine is yours, I'll share it. 
Beautiful, huh? Ah, much, much to celebrate in this season. It says there in verse 34, there was not an easy, a needy person among them. Wow, let that soak in for a second. Really, Luke, are you really just sugarcoating this? Are you, are you throwing out the flowers so we receive this? Uh, are you making it better than it really was? I mean, thousands of people, there wasn't a needy person among them. Really? Think about who the author of this is. Luke's in the facts, right? If you consider the author when you study your word, this really is powerful. I don't think Luke just flowers stuff for the sake of flowering it up. I don't think he just wants Jesus and his people to look better. So he's throwing it out there. In fact, we're going to get in chapter 5. You'll see exactly why that's supported by what he records. He's recording facts. He's like, there was not a needy person among them. You guys, we haven't seen this kind of unity, have we, in our midst for quite some time. I would say, fairly say, there's a number of reasons for that. But um, we're looking at a thing where it's not something being forced from without like communism would be. It's something from within finding its way out which is natural now to the Christian community. So right away, we have this ideal that we can all look to and pray about. It's not that we're going to try and be more generous in our own flesh. If you do that, if you walk out of here and say, okay, what can I give? What can I sell to give? You know, you're going to be in a flesh track that's probably going to lead you to a dead end or frustration. Better yet to say, Holy Spirit, how do you want to uh, continue to work in my heart so that my heart's transformed the way you want it to be Others focus. There's many needs among us. I'm not saying everybody run out, sell your properties right now and bring all the money right here at my feet. I would be way too tempted if you did that, first of all. But, and I would need the support of the elders board to maintain control over that, whatever that is. That's facetious. You're, you're not laughing. That's okay. It's a dumb joke. It's okay. It's like, man, this guy's teaching us today. No, it's not like we, this isn't the prescription of what to do, but it's a description of an ideal of which to strive for, where you would actually be so prompted and directed by what you observe around you in terms of need, that you would be so prompted to simply do one thing, and I think that'll lead you to what happens next as God directs it, and that is to simply pray, Lord, what do you want me to do? in light of this need, right? That's the key. What do you want me to do in light of this need? I have a new set of desires, Lord. I have a new set of feelings. I have been affected by the fact that you love me unconditionally. You have given me everything I need and more. How can I meet these needs? If you do that, church, great things are going to happen. You just simply pray, Lord, how do you want, you know, because the difference here, and this is something that I have to train myself in, the difference is just being aware of needs, which are always around us, right? They don't go away. There's no stop to them. But when I can get so used to them being present and I stop asking what can, Lord, how do you want to use me, then, then I just, it just, it's just news. It might as well be a newscast, um, even in my personal life, of people I know and love. My own needs, what do I do with them? I pray, right? I pray, God, how do you want to meet these needs? If you want to bless me through somebody else, that's great. But how often am I praying that, Lord, please put it on somebody's heart <laughs> to meet my need right now, as opposed to, Lord, how do you want to use me to meet somebody else's need? And I'm not just talking about financially also, right? It's a whole bunch of things that can be done to meet needs around you. So that's really, to me, the, the, the rub and where, the, where that real pivotal part is, is if, as I see needs, and mind you, there's thousands of people from all different cultures, from all different settings. These aren't natural allegiances, as Brian has been pointing out. These are things that are supernatural. But when we just simply say, God, how do you want to use me? Then we're on the right track. So here's some proofs of unity going on. Just I made some observations here. They were making an effort to be together. That's pretty... Simple and straightforward, right? Made an effort to be together. That's important, though. Don't neglect the gathering of the brethren, right? They just needed to be together. There was a, there was a, a, a natural bent towards, I want to fellowship with them as different as they may be from me. Number two, they'd worship, prayer, communion, necessary ingredients. That's all 
uh, even summarized in Acts 2.42, a very well-known passage. Number three, the proofs of unity. There was danger and threats that were ubiquitous for all. Unity grew as a result. I think of Peter and John being said to them, you cannot preach in this name. You cannot preach. That was persecution. That the, the danger and the threats that were all about being a Christian right now drove them towards one another, and that results in unity. Um, number four, proofs of unity. Gener- generosity flowed, and needs were met, like in verse 34. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses, they sold them and brought the pro- proceeds of what was sold. Think about all these people from different areas. Kind of refugee status at the time. Maybe a lot of them didn't have a place or couldn't afford a place to rent as they were out of the town. They, they just came in as a Jew, not knowing about Jesus necessarily, get saved, they want to hang out and fellowship. They don't have a place to go. People are like, hey, no problem. Put you up. It's all good. Uh, lands were sold. Proceeds were brought, given over, distributed. And then it makes mention of, in verse 36, this guy named Barnabas. Actually, the name was given to him. It was called by the apostles Barnabas. So this guy was obviously, there's something special about Barnabas going on, or Joseph, or Joseph. That they, they said, this name does not adequately represent who you are. I think we should change it. There's something about Barnabas when he's around that you are encouraged in the Lord. There's something about Barnabas when his presence is, is there in their midst. There's something where he demanded a name change. How awesome is that? We got to call you. Well, let's see. What can we call you? I don't know how this process came down, but I really like the result. And I want to be a Barnabas. Amen. Don't you? Don't you want people to just I naturally say, when I'm around you, I feel encouraged in the Lord. I feel encouraged to take steps of faith. I feel encouraged in my trials and in my needs to to look up towards the Lord to meet those needs. I feel encouraged to pray more. I feel encouraged. Just just people going through the worst of trials are the biggest encouragements to me as I go through this life. And that is something to be celebrated. And Luke here just throws in, for whatever reason, I have a couple ideas, but right here he says, there's this guy who did the same. It's like he took all these people doing this, but for some reason in particular, we can take this as a clue, is he singles out Barnabas. Now, of course, we know in part, going through Acts later on, we're going to read a lot more about Barnabas. He is an amazing encouragement to people like Paul on the missionary journeys. He's an amazing encouragement to people who are downcast and kind of bumming out like, like his, uh, his companion Mark, who went through a lot of trial in his uh, journeys with Barnabas. This guy was known as the son of encouragement. Okay, now last one, proof of unity. They never left, notice, note this, in verse 33, or excuse me, yeah, 33, they never left the priority of sharing the gospel with those outside the church as they met the physical needs of fellow believers. This is really, really, I think really, really, really important. They never left the priority of sharing the gospel with those outside the church. Why is this really important? Well, I think because simply this. Outside needs, or excuse me, physical needs, financial needs. Uh, I would say even in the area of, of physical ailment needs. They're all secondary to what really people need to have a cure of. To have a need met in, right? Which is what? which is all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, which is God has, has by default a, 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 a judgment of wrath over the sinful people that he himself loved and created because of their own choosing. So they never left the priority. It, it could be, in other words, their ideal, guys, was not a utopia based on need distribution or wealth distribution. It was a, it was a utopia, if you will, where sinners became righteous and a miraculous transformation only brought on by the gift of God so that no one can boast. They never left, says the apostles, right? It was with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of Jesus and great grace was upon them all. So it wasn't, this is not, um, gosh, what's the, what's the, the word is escaping me right now. For the sake of meeting needs, we don't ditch the gospel we put that preeminent if we're doing the right thing. 
That's true for us as it was for them. Lord willing, we will never, ever, ever stop preaching the good news of the gospel at Calvary Slope. Lord willing, churches in our community. Lord willing, churches all over the world. That the number one thing we would be about as believers would be about communicating the life-saving message that Jesus came to save sinners such as me, and he did that and offers a free gift of salvation and forgiveness of those sins that he might just start that process in us by transforming us from the inside out into new people in a new community for his glory and his renown forever and ever and ever. And as he does that, we're seeing God do miracles all around us. It starts there. It ends there. Whatever he chooses to do in our midst to bring us together to meet needs, physical healings, whatever, that's all gravy. But if we ever leave the gospel behind somewhere because something else rivals it as an ideal and becomes in itself an idol, we're, we're totally wrong. The, the cart's now in front of the horse, Right? Because that is the most important part of life, is that we know Jesus and know his salvation and be saved in him. Okay, moving on. Here's the juxtaposition. We have all this going on, ideals of unity, and now we go to chapter 5. God judges sin. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. So he did as it was described just a second ago. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, so he brings it to Peter, Peter addresses him, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did, you not remain, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, uh, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. He died. Great fear came upon all who heard of it. And here's, here's a classic Luke part in here. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Thanks, Luke, for that description there. What happened? He's in the facts, right? He's like, the young men came, wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. Very straightforward. Think what you will. Verse 7. After an inter interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. So somehow word did not get to her. She comes in their midst. Um, and Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together with your husband, that is, to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. There's your juxtaposition. Good, good thoughts, good feelings, great things happening, and bam. Acts chapter 5 starts out with this couple. We just prayed for marriages. This is a good example of why we should pray for marriages. God reminds us through these verses, which are strangely offset. There's a couple things, that, a couple questions that I had just at um, face value with this. One is, God, isn't this a little harsh? That was the first thought I had. Anybody think that? Yeah. <laughs> you know, he's, okay, so he left some of the money behind and wasn't honest about it, but did he deserve to die on the spot? And then, of course, his wife comes in the same thing. So that was one of the questions I had. Um, you can tell me afterwards what your opinion is on that. Um, I won't tell you what my opinion is. Okay. Um, also... Uh, that seems very, not just harsh, but swift. Boom. He just got finished saying, yeah, that's what the price was, and bam. I mean, it, it's, it's not like, uh, okay, some, some would say, uh, well, Luke's just describing a heart attack or a stroke. Uh, it could have been anything. It could have been, you know, he had, you know, bad 
falafel or whatever. You know, whatever, he's, there's just something to hit him. It happened to me, coincidence, as right after he finished the sentence, boom, he falls down dead. And uh, that would be one thing, but then what happens right after that is wife comes in, and you, if you had any doubts before, right, young men come in, take them out, bury them. Wife comes in, same question, opportunity apparently to repent, to say the truth, to come correct. Not one person tells her, which I find very interesting, why. If I was the messenger, maybe it's like, don't shoot the messenger, God. If I'm giving her this message, you know, I, I didn't have any part of this, but I don't know. I don't know why. It just didn't, she didn't get word. She comes in, she says the same thing, and then bam, right away. So one person maybe looks like, okay, if you're doubting this as God, as Peter addresses that it is, God's judgment, uh, about three hours later, it happened again. And, and he gives her that chance to repent. But there's a few things I'm taking out of this, and I want to share them with you, um, that are good, healthy things for us as, a, as, a, as believers and as a community. Number one, throw them up there, one at a time. He's omniscient. God wants to remind us a few important things. One is that he's omniscient. He knows everything. Sometimes we miss this. It seems obvious, but there's real deep, profound impact in your life when you just remember that God knows everything. Lying to him... Is, is, it never ends well. It's not a good thing. He is omniscient. He already knows everything from beginning to end, future, past. We know that. But I just want to say, like in verse 3, verse 4, verse 9, this community, as good as it was going, needed a healthy dose that God was working. It wasn't independent, but it was very dependent on him. And he knows everything. Number two is just that he's righteous. He doesn't tolerate sin. This is something we want, especially in our day and age, in our culture, we want to soften this. That God as judge is not too comfortable a thing for us Americans in this day and age, is it? That God could do this, decide to do this, and carry it out. That's just, hey, we're all here to get along. God doesn't do this. You know, he's not willing that any should perish. Those things are true. But sometimes God just wants to remind us that he is righteous, that he doesn't coexist with sin. Here's one other thing, you guys, is very important, in my opinion. We deserve this judgment all the time. But in his grace and in his mercy, this is the exception, not the rule. Got to get an amen, amen on that one, yeah? Uh, uh, driving here to church today, I was just thinking of, thinking of God, who am I to talk about these scriptures? If anybody should have been dead a long time ago, it's me. It's by his grace that I'm even here right now, sharing this message of sobriety to my own heart, saying, Lord, you have been merciful. He is a merciful God, but he's righteous. He's holy. He can do this and still remain righteous. Because why? Because sin, no matter what it is, does not cohabitate with a holy God. And righteously so. If it did, you guys, we wouldn't be serving God as we know him. And the whole thing would just destruct on itself. We need a God who's holy and who's righteous and can decree judgments as he sees fit to the unrighteous. There's other things that we can talk about. I'm going to leave that right there where it's at. Number three, white lies are lies. Sin is sin. Amen? No small thing in God's sight. That's a great reminder as well, isn't it? Everything matters to God. Everything. Remind, you know, it matters to him. Sin is sin. If you wanted to, hey, I, was, I didn't know, I... Uh, it, somebody else, our accountant did it, whatever. It, you're responsible, yeah? Number four, heart is the priority. Actions are secondary to God. Verse four. Why have you lied in your hearts? Why has Satan filled your heart? Why did you allow that to get in your heart? That's the seedbed of desires and passions. If we want our actions to be right, we focus on that. The heart is a wellspring of life. Everything flows from your heart. Pray for a good heart. Pray for your pure heart. Pray for God to, to get in there and and a fresh, especially on a Valentine's Day, everything's hearts, 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 right? Think about how your heart can be transformed by God, taking out all the, the leaven and, and the stuff that, that is impure. And Lord, just get in there and, and, and bring it to my attention so that I can pray it out. Okay, God, number five, God acts sometimes swiftly in judgment. Sometimes he acts swiftly in judgment. And you guys, if these guys were saved, which I believe they were, they weren't marked by Luke as unbelievers trying to pose as believers. I think they're believers. I would say right now they're in paradise with Jesus. So the judgment, if I'm correct, I can't prove it via the text, but 
But I'll just say, if the judgment was swift, it was judgment that came upon them as believers, they went straightly, straight to the presence of God. Why? Because of his finished work on the cross that allowed that to be possible. That we are saved not by our works, but in spite of them. Yeah? So, so the judgment is a powerful message to the community at large. But if they were believers, they're instantly comforted. And their judgment actually becomes a blessing. You with me on that? Different way to look at it. Okay. Number six. He's in charge and control of the body. He's in charge. He's the one who says what happens and does what he wants. And he uses us and he does things in our lives for the sake of other people to learn from. Next one. There's a few more here. He gives us the opportunity to repent. Did you catch that? Number seven, verse. After an interval of about how many hours? You had to know that before this they had talked because they were in cahoots together, right? They had to say, hey, one another. I don't know who did it first. I don't know if it was Adam and Eve kind of discussion going on, who lied to whom or whatever, but it doesn't matter. They both agreed that this is what we're going to do. Hey, let's sell the property and let's bring it to the apostles like everybody else, but let's just, let's just not give this part because we have this bill and, I don't know, we want to do this with that and we have a retirement account, we have our IRAs to fund, all that kind of stuff, right? So let's just keep a part of it back. And it says about three hours later his wife comes in. So that's, that's there. She's wrestling with that in I, I, I'm just trying to put myself in their position. I think when, when, you're in, when you want to sin yourself individually, it's, it, when you have the Holy Spirit, there should be some type of check that says, this isn't right. There's something wrong with this. I shouldn't go this direction. When you have a married partner involved or someone close to you that's also in agreement to sin, and there's, the, there's that double portion of conviction, and it's still, not, it's still not getting its way to their actions changing. And, and so I would say here... He gives us the opportunity to repent, but he also brings us people in our lives to remind us of what path we really should be on. And, 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 and when, it's, when our flesh is getting in the way is when we want to just say, no, I don't need that right now. Get out of my way. Uh, get out of my, uh, you know, stop talking to me about these things. Sometimes we resent the very accountability that God's bringing into our lives and that should be there, especially in a marriage relationship. Notice, guys, when we're called to submit one to another out of reverence for Christ, as Paul says in Ephesians, as it pertains even to the extent of marriage, you're never called to submit to a sinful action. Sapphira, okay, with, a, with, with, his, with her husband, that should have been something where she's like, no, I'm not going to submit to that. He should have led in a righteous way, saying, no, honey, I've been thinking about this. Uh, this is wrong. I need, I need to lead us towards w- ways of righteousness. So you get the husband role that's necessary, and you get the wife's role that's necessary to sometimes say, husband, that's not the way we're supposed to go about it. I can't submit to that. I'm not in agreement with that. Neither, every, both of them failed. They both got judged. Yeah? Neither are innocent. But he gave us an opportunity. He always gives us an opportunity to repent, to have a point where we say, there's no temptation that's going to overtake us. There's always a way out. That's why they're accountable for their actions. Okay, next one. It's good to have a fear of God. The fear, that word there in the Greek is phobos, and it means fear, terror, respect, reverence. There's a reminder here that God judges, and he can judge swiftly, and he's righteous in his judgments. And out of that evokes a real sense of terror, a real sense of, man, what sin am I allowing to exist in my own life? I want it out. I want it conquered. I want it victory in that realm. Fear of God is a good thing. It's the beginning of wisdom. Number nine, the Holy Spirit is not a force, but he's God. He says in verse three, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then later on, verse four, you have not lied to men, but to God. Holy Spirit is not a force. You can't lie to a force. Force just is. He's saying very clearly, the Holy Spirit is God. And when we deceive God, when we we lie, as silly as that seems, when we talk about it, we do it all the time. I do it all the time. It's really you're lying to God. You're lying to God, the Holy Spirit knows, and you can grieve the Holy Spirit, like in verse 3 and 4. Number 10, there's 14, so we're almost done. Oh, come on, what's the, these are good, the last, I've saved the best for last. Number 10, God's word is fact-based, not sugar-coated. You just have what you have. I appreciate this passage for that in of itself, that God just gives us facts. And allows the Holy Spirit to really bring what's personal to us and how we're supposed to be convicted about it. It's not 
this fairy tale. It's not everything's perfect, and then you compare your life to it, and you can't relate. No, this is the word of God that has all the flaws, all the sin included in the people that love God, and the people that are opposed to God, and the people that don't know yet God, and the people that knew God but didn't follow through on what they should have done. It's all in there, and it all encourages me in the end. Does it encourage you? Get in the word, you guys. It describes us. This describes me. I take good warning from it. I hope you do too. Number 11, comparing ourselves to others, this is key, and their actions is a trap. It's a trap. It just kills. It destroys. Luke at the end of chapter 4 says, a gentleman comes up, Barnabas, and, and does this action. Could it be that all of these people doing this just fed the pride of Ananias and Sapphira to the point where they wanted to compare themselves and look good in comparison to what other people are doing? I think it's fair to say they probably did have that feeling. There's something about peer pressure here from within that I want to I look the part. I want to be part of the club. I want to look as if I'm holier than I really am. I think that comparison one to another, guys, when you compare yourself to each other, you can look really good or you can get really depressed really quick. But when you compare yourself to Jesus, it's just the whole, the whole topic is blown out, right? So let's not compare one to another because that's a trap. Let's compare ourselves to Jesus. Lord, what, again, I go back to, Lord, what do you want me to do? And if he calls you to give a little, then you give a little. If he wants you to, to do X, Y, and Z, then he does that. That's between you and God. It was between Ananias and Sapphira and God, but they decided to let that other envy and com comparison creep in. There's other people going to be more talented than you. There's going to be more people more devoted than you. There's going to be people that do things better than you do. But you're not comparing yourself to them. You're comparing yourself to Jesus. That eliminates the whole conversation. You're just like, Lord, I just need help. <laughs> just let me get the basics. Let me just improve a little bit. Day by day, please, God, work in my life. Help me not compare myself to other people. If you're in ministry, like for me, it's been years. The most freeing thing ever in my life, ministry-wise, was when I realized I don't have to be like any other pastor or leader. I don't have to be Brian. I don't have to be so-and-so that I listen to on the radio. I can't do that guy's voice good enough. You ever, ever, ever hear John Corson preach? Throwing going back a little bit? That guy's voice was made for preaching. Deep and ha-ha-ha, you know? I didn't even practice that. Ho, 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 ho. If you haven't heard John Corson, now you're never going to listen to him. You're like, no, he's a great, I was like, you know, I remember he was like one of those guys just impacted me big time. And it's like you naturally want to emulate him. I didn't want to emulate him when I realized, like, why am I trying to be him? <laughs> a sinful guy that needs grace to be an effective minister. I want to just be somebody who can give his own testimony of God's faithfulness. I used to freak out. Many of you know this already. I shared this many times before. I postponed speech class until the very last quarter of my college career at Cal Poly because I hated giving speeches. It kept me up with panic attacks. Anybody relate to that? All right, signed up for next week, and then we got next, teaching through Acts over here. Um, it's, it's ironic to me that I do occasional teaching here, but weddings and funerals and and just teaching different opportunities around. It's, it's ironic because I think back, like, God, I, if I had compared myself to John Corson then when I was petrified of speaking, I remember the first time I spoke at a Calvary Sunday night service at our SDA location, Seventh-day Adventist location on Oso Street, the little white building. You guys know that's where we started out meeting way back in the day. I remember there was a Sunday night service. Some of you guys are, you know what I'm talking about. We, we were going through Revelation, and, and a few of us guys were, we're called upon by Brian, just young in our 20s, and we're just called to take a different church in, in, in the first chapters of Revelation. And I, I had Thyatira, I still remember it. And I remember we're worshiping and I, and, and, and before the message, and I'm freaking out in the back. Like, God, please, if this is the time to do Ananias and Sapphira on me, I'll totally welcome it. If, there's, you know, if you want to take me home and I don't have to do this, that's good with me. I don't say this to build me up, but the last wedding I did, 
special couple in Pismo just a couple weeks ago. The mom of the bride came up to me. This is what makes me chuckle inside. She has no idea of my past or my wanting to throw up talking to people in, in front of people <laughs> in the past. She comes up to me and she goes, you know what? When you do what you do, you're in your wheelhouse. Now, I like baseball, and I took that one. I was like, oh, that's awesome. I love that, you know? I really enjoy it. But that's God doing in my life. That's part of the testimony I have of his goodness and his grace to, get, to make things that are weak and, and infuse what he does into our lives so that we're actually more than what we're capable in our flesh. And that's true for each and every one of you. God has his own path with you where you just simply say, Lord, what do you want me to do? And he gives you the strength to do it even when it's your worst terrifying fear and phobia. He'll give you the strength to do it. Amen? Amen. I promised just a couple more, right? God blesses us with gifts, talents, resources, etc., and we are stewards. Like in Luke 21, 1 through 4. See, if Ananias and Sapphira had heard the words of Jesus, take them to heart, that's not the amount you give, it's what heart you give it with. When he said, the widow has given more than these people giving huge amounts of money, then they would have been in a good place. See, that's where God's word keeps us in the straight and narrow. Uh, number 13, accountability, especially in our relationships, is very important. It keeps us in a good place. We tend to wander like sheep. Um, don't expect the people in your lives to, to always do what they need to do because we're likened to sheep. We always stray. We need each other and the accountability that comes through community. Last one, words of knowledge here are powerful and for a specific purpose. Peter comes out with this word. You, you guys reread the story, realize Peter's the only one who has this revelation and he gives it publicly. They brought their gift. They brought their sin, unfortunately, publicly. Peter addresses it publicly with a word of knowledge, which is described there in those passages in 1 Corinthians, if you want to read further. But it's a powerful uh, application of that gift. And one that Paul says, I wish, even though I speak in tongues, I would, you know, I, all these people speak in tongues, I wish that I just had a few words of prophecy because then the unbeliever would become a believer and process hopefully through that and the Lord would power, everybody could say amen to it. And I'm summarizing that passage, but it's really what it is. And when that happened here, boy, gosh, it had everybody's attention, didn't it? Everybody's attention. Peter, this is crazy. They look so the part. They look great. They're, they're brothers and sisters. How can you say such a thing? It was a word of knowledge. He stepped out in faith. And as a result, God purified his church even more. I want to read this last quote by David Gusick, one of my favorite teachers. His commentary on Acts says, Peter freely acknowledged that the land and its value belonged to Ananias alone. He was completely free to do with it what he wanted. His crime was not in withholding the money, but in deceptively implying that he gave it all. Of course, his sin was greed in keeping the money. But his greater sin was pride in wanting everyone to consider him so spiritual that he gave it all when he had not. Their sin is imitated in many ways today. We can create or allow the impression that we have it all together when we do not. We can exaggerate our spiritual accomplishments or effectiveness to appear something we are not. It's too easy to be happy with the image of spirituality without the reality of spiritual life. Their great sin was rooted in pride. Pride corrupts the church more quickly than anything else. What, in general, this juxtaposition, these two passages, I'll have the worship team come on up. We'll finish in worship. But generosity reigns in a community in Christ, as does purpose, vision, activity being unified. Where we see each other as family, and we're responsible for each other. That's the ideal. Where every gift offered to God is to be pure and without hypocrisy and authenticity. And lastly, if there's hypocrisy in our lives, it's something to pray about now. Um, let's all stand, if we will, together. And uh, it's a good chance right now. Hopefully you're feeling motivated after we studied this passage to ask God that question. God, what hypocrisy, what am I allowing in my life? How am I comparing myself with someone else, perhaps? Or maybe it's just an issue where you just need to trust God with your needs. That, Lord, you, you, know, you became a little disillusioned with this community, maybe let you down, or didn't meet a need. All that, we just give it to the Lord because he's the one that's in control, ultimately, yeah?
so everything that we have in our hearts as we worship, let's go in, inside with the Holy Spirit and just say, Lord, please root out the insecurities that cause me to act a certain way, the, the sin in my life, the, the, the trying to look better than I am. And if you need prayer for any of these areas, of course, we have people over on the side by the cross to pray with you, uh, to lift that up in agreement with you where the accountability is a good thing if you need to share that with someone else. And then also in the back, we have communion. And I would say the communion table is always open for believers, always open. It reminds us of the, of the shed blood and the broken body of Jesus on that cross. It's something that we go and partake of as we do in faith that reality that God has saved us through his finished work on the cross, through his son Jesus. If you're not a Christian today, the, the table is not an invitation at this point. But it's an open invitation to any who had come to say, Lord, I repent of my sin. I give you my life. Please forgive me. And I come to your table not as something I've earned, but something I receive, even possibly for the first time today. But if you're not a believer and you haven't given your heart to the Lord, then the table is not open. But it, it, it's in your court with that because God welcomes all sinners and he saves all repentant people. Amen. Hallelujah is right. Lord God, thank you for this morning. And, and Lord, we, we are a community that's fallen. We're a community that needs you. We need, we need your Holy Spirit to, to do what's right. Lord, we fail all the time. We fail at meeting needs. We fail at recognizing needs. We fail at just being prideful and wanting to look good in front of other people. Lord, we're broken as anybody else, but Lord, we have hope greater than anyone else because not of anything of ourselves, but because of what you've done. So Lord, as we, as we pray now, as we give you our hearts now, as you work in our midst, as we worship in song, Lord, may we get prayer for one another. May we just receive the communion uh, afresh this morning, recognizing that, Lord, we have not been judged as our sins deserve. So love you, Lord. We love you. We love you again. And we just say we love you. Thank you, Jesus.